The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle, a student-run, student-scripted, and student-produced news show on 88.1 WKNC HD1 Raleigh. I'm Aaron Kling. On this week's episode of Eye on the Triangle, we discuss the growing threat of treatable diseases, such as measles, and the necessity of vaccination with Dr. Kelly Kimball. Afterwards, we'll head over to speak with Tracy Peake of the podcast Audio Abstracts to discuss the practice of converting scientific journals to publicly digestible information. So don't touch that dial. We've got a great show, and Eye on the Triangle is up next. I'm Aaron Kling with Eye on the Triangle, WKNC 88.1, and I'm here with Dr. Kelly Kimball, and she is... Hi, I'm the Section Chief for Women's and Children's Health in the Division of Public Health in North Carolina. What do you do here, Dr. Kelly? So I oversee multiple programs related to children and women and families, and included under that is also immunizations. One of the reasons why I'm here is the recent surge in measles and the lax uh, immunization protocols that some people have been following. Do you have any comments on that? Well, I think we know that you know vaccines have really been a significant public health accomplishment, that they're safe, effective, and really the best way to protect oneself from serious illness, complications, and even death. And so, of course, as vaccination rates go down, one has to worry about increasing rates of these vaccine-preventable diseases, such as measles. And the best and way to protect yourself and really protect the entire community is to make sure that you get vaccinated. So what are some of the hazards of measles? Some people see it as kind of a um, maybe a flu with a little bit of a twist as far as a rash goes. But are they aware of some of the longer-lasting effects that measles can have? So measles can be a very serious illness. And so typically measles starts with a fever. You can get a runny nose, some red eyes, some cough, and then you break out in a rash. But the complications, and and they're more serious really in children younger than five, as well as pregnant women or others that might have a weakened immune system. And then you can have serious consequences such as a lung infection, pneumonia, or swelling of the brain, which can have very dire consequences. Do you know why some people will be hesitant to take vaccines? 
So I know that there's, you know, a lot of information out there. There's no shortage of access to information on the internet. And I know that there have been thoughts that vaccines cause autism or other concerns. But what we do know is that that's not true. Uh, Vaccines do not cause autism. You know, the ingredients in vaccines are safe and vaccines are studied extensively for safety and efficacy. And with that, we know that really the best thing to do is to get vaccinated. So some people will have allergic reactions to the ingredients in vaccines. Can vaccines still be a benefit to them? So for those that have an allergic reaction, a true allergic reaction to the vaccine, then getting that vaccine again would not be for them. So that would be a contraindication or reason not to get the vaccine. There are other potential reasons, depending on the vaccine, that one may not be able to get that vaccine. But that's what makes, you know, the community being vaccinated so important because really we want to protect not only ourselves, but there are others, for example, young infants or, as I mentioned, some people with weakened immune systems or maybe taking certain medications. And those people may not be able to get the vaccine. So they really depend on that community around them to be vaccinated and protected so that the illness doesn't spread through to them. When you look at diseases such as pertussis, this is something that we've seen in North Carolina as well as other states, and this can be deadly in infants and infants that are too young to get the vaccine. So that would be herd immunity, the the concept of trying to immunize as much of the population as possible to overcome the infectivity of a disease to prevent it from reaching anyone else. Correct. And so really, you know, we think of herd immunity and how resistant population is to to the disease. And we really strive in public health to have 100% of the population vaccinated. But we know that there's always going to be those people that might not be able to, for medical reasons, get vaccinated. So when we have pockets of individuals or areas that have decreasing vaccination rates, it's very concerning because this is where outbreaks and epidemics occur. How would you go about educating the population? How do you reach out to communities to better help them understand the role of vaccination and how it can benefit them? Well, I think public health professionals, medical professionals, other advocates continue to try to get the word out about increasing, you know, making sure you're up to date on your immunizations, making sure not only that you're up to date on immunizations, but children are going in for their regular checkups to make sure that they're healthy all around. And so up to date on shots, growing and developing appropriately. And also continuing to have those conversations with those that might be hesitant to get vaccine. You know, I know there's a lot of information out there, but there's also diseases that we haven't seen in a long time that people aren't scared of because they haven't seen them. And they should be scared of that. So having a dialogue, I think, with the parents to understand their concerns or someone else to really uh, get to the reason why they may not be choosing to vaccinate, because we know that vaccines really are safe, they're effective, and they really are a great accomplishment to protect oneself and the community. So you acknowledge that some families could be nervous about the idea or because of prior experiences or information they found online or in communities, but you, you're saying that it wouldn't be a risk to them or their families or that the risk for at least an allergic reaction would be extremely low. Yeah, and so we have seen some vaccine hesitancy, so people that choose not to get vaccinated or choose that for their children or to delay vaccination. And and really, the schedule for getting shots has been studied to make sure that that's an appropriate schedule, a safe schedule, and one that makes the vaccines most effective. 
So yes, there are people that are continuing to, to choose not to get vaccines, but I think that we need to continue to have that conversation about why they are concerned and what information they may have encountered that made them think about that. So overall, as I mentioned, vaccines are very safe and the risk for side effects is very low, serious side effects. I mean, you may have with any shot the risk of redness, swelling, soreness where you get the vaccination, but the serious consequences or serious adverse reactions to vaccines are extremely rare. We see common effects like the redness and swelling and pain, but we do keep track of some of those more serious um, side effects. Studies have come out about measles potentially weakening the immune system in the long term. It does really illustrate the risk that measles poses to populations, especially as far as secondary infections go. Have you read that study or seen anything involved with it? So I know there are a lot of different studies out there. I mean, and we know that measles has a lot of complications and and not only the risk of secondary infections and some of the complications that can occur, but even the risk of death, especially in young children or others that might be more at risk. And so really with all of those, you know, whether it's long-term consequences or complications, I think the issue is is that measles, we need to be taking measles at the risk of measles as a serious illness and one that we have a vaccine to protect for and that, you know, getting the measles, the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine really is the best way to protect oneself. Measles is grabbing a lot of headlines, and there has definitely been a strong public health pushback against the idea of of vaccines not being effective. What other uh, communicable diseases are seeing a resurgence, both in America and worldwide, if you have that information? Well, you know, we we do keep track, you know, in the epidemiology section, keep track of vaccine-preventable diseases. And so we look at intermittent outbreaks and um, measles is one in particular that is more difficult to control because it is extremely contagious. So if someone were to have measles walked into a room and coughed, someone two hours later going into that room may contract measles. So measles in particular is concerning because it's very hard to control an outbreak. Others too that are um, concerning, and I mentioned pertussis is another one that we see intermittently Um, and especially the danger that that poses to infants. And so, you know, for example, pregnant women now, it's recommended that pregnant women or those that might be around infants go ahead and get a Tdap vaccine so that they can make sure that they're protected against pertussis to minimize that risk to the infant because that can be deadly. But there is information out there regarding the you know, the prevalence and the number of cases of some vaccine-preventable diseases, depending on which ones you look at. Where can an individual go to get a vaccine? So one could go to their health care provider and as part of ongoing care. If one does not have a, a health care provider, they can always go to the local health department to get vaccines. And again, in North Carolina, we make sure that vaccines are um, accessible and affordable, um, and especially with the North Carolina Immunization Program. For some children, vaccines or others, vaccines are free of charge. If you haven't gotten a vaccine for any reason, if, you're, if your parents chose not to or, or it wasn't available where you lived originally, is it too late for you? Is there any kind of time limit on when you can get a vaccine? Uh, of course not. So if one has not been vaccinated against the or received the recommended vaccines, you can go into a healthcare provider or local health department to review what you may need today, depending on your age and what you've received because it's never too late to start protecting yourself and the community from these vaccine-preventable diseases. 
So you've mentioned that measles is, is highly infectious, but is whooping cough making a resurgence? Is some of the uh, other diseases like perhaps smallpox making a resurgence? So no, so we don't um, see smallpox, which has been eradicated, and we don't see, and pertussis is really one that, you know, we see in outbreaks and we're able to control. I think measles is really getting the attention because it has been the most widespread outbreak that we've seen recently with over a thousand cases confirmed in 28 states in the United States. And we've seen that spread rapidly. And this really is the largest number of cases that we've seen reported in the U.S. since 1992. And since measles was declared eradicated in 2000. And so that in itself is very concerning because what you start to see are the most contagious diseases like measles start coming out first. And then showing that there is decreasing vaccination rates and that there might be decreased herd immunity in some areas. And so we know that with that, there's a risk of any uh, vaccine-preventable disease if, if we're not vaccinated and protected. Is there anything you want to tell our listeners uh, before we wrap up here? Well, I think that vaccines are critically important, that they're safe and they're effective. And really the best way to protect yourself and the entire community from these um, serious illnesses, many of which we haven't seen in years, thank goodness, um, but that is due to the success of vaccines. And it's never too late to go out and make sure that you have all the recommended vaccines and to start protecting population. Thank you so much, Dr. Kelly Kimball. I really appreciate you coming out here. I've been reading a lot of reports on vaccination rates dropping, and when I saw that, I just had to do this show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1 HD1 Raleigh. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1 I on the Triangle, and I'm speaking with Tracy Peake, the manager of the Audio Abstract Podcast here at NC State. Let's get right into it. So we're talking about the Audio Abstract Podcast. My idea for the podcast really came about because I'm sort of a nerd. Well, I'm not sort of a nerd. I'm a huge nerd, but I'm not a science person. My background is in English. But as part of my job here, I cover scientific terms. The folks in the news services office cover all the different colleges on campus, and we divide them up like reporters divide beats up. And so the two that I ended up with were science-focused, the College of Sciences and Veterinary Medicine. And as part of my job, I get to talk to a whole variety of researchers doing all kinds of different stuff, and I find it fascinating. I love talking to them, not just about the work, but why they do the work they do, what they like about it. And I found that a lot of the stuff that I produce for news services, press releases, stories for the website, stories for the outside public, didn't really get to delve very much into why the researchers are passionate about what they do. We're sort of a just the facts, ma'am kind of organization. And I thought, well, podcasting is the perfect format for letting people get to know these researchers as people. A lot of times outside the university, I think folks have an idea that, you know, there's this separate wall where all this mysterious research is happening behind the scenes. And this would be a good opportunity, I thought, for people who aren't in academia to see what's happening and why it's cool and talk to people about why they're passionate about what they do. If you've devoted a career to science, you're obviously very passionate about it. And so we decided Audio Abstract would be a great way to do it. So we cover topics that are timely. So maybe a researcher has had a paper come out 
and I will get in touch with them and say, you know, let's talk about this. It would be great for the podcast. Or maybe it's just a topic that I'm interested in. Maybe it's a researcher that I've worked with in the past. Uh, for example, one of the first ones we did was with Mary Schweitzer, who's, she's really a pioneer in molecular paleontology, which is a pretty new field in paleo. It's not just, hey, we found some bones in the ground, but it's, what are these made of? Can we find out, you know, from the composition of these bones, what exactly is preserving over time? We've had some students involved in the work. So we did a podcast on brain research. That was some graduate students who just decided to come on for October and talk about the coolest things people have found out about the human brain in the course of that sort of stuff. And we've talked with students and professors who have done some interesting physics work, like the one that Karen Daniels did, where they got to go up on what they call the Vomit Comet, which is a series of parabolic flights where you can test experiments in zero gravity. And so it was kind of fun to talk to them about, A, why they got that opportunity, and B, what it was like flying up in the air and whether or not everyone made it without getting really, really sick. And spoiler alert, all but one, I think, <laughs> made it without getting sick. So that's part of the reason that we're doing it. Is I guess in some ways I could say it was a selfish project because I love this stuff and I thought other people would love it too. But it also plays into sort of the larger responsibility that the university has, which is to inform the public about what we're doing here and why it matters. So that was my thought process with this podcast. And we've been doing it a little bit over a year now. And, you know, we're building an audience slowly. We've had to kind of start from ground zero in terms of, you know, where we're going to put it, you know, all the mechanics behind it, you know, where you're going to put it, how you're going to get it to people how you're going to advertise it, that sort of thing. But it's really been a lot of fun so far. So I'm enjoying it very much. And I hope it's helpful. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, what's one of your favorite parts of this job? My favorite part of this job, and not just the podcasting job, but of the job that I do generally, is just learning new things. And again, my job is to help translate complicated science into a form that is accessible to the general public. And I think it's really a valuable thing to do, especially, you know, now where there's so much information and disinformation out in the world. I want to make sure that what we're telling people is correct. So that's part of it. But a lot of it is just learning new things from people who are experts in the field. I get all the benefits of science without having to do science myself. And as an English major, I think that's wonderful. I think that's great. Uh, so I've enjoyed that very much. Okay, so usually the way that we do this, and we don't, like when I do, when I collaborate with researchers here on campus to publicize their research through a press release, that's generally tied to a publication that that researcher has put in a journal. Okay, so it could be anything. Since I cover sciences and vet med, a lot of the journals are on the medical side physics, then you have the big ones like PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences, places like that. But with the podcast, I also can, I also have the freedom to get away from just sort of repeating what we did on the news side. Do you know what I mean? Just sort of repeating a press release. So one of the most recent things we've done, and that I'm working on right now, in fact, is part two of an interview with Paul Byrne, and he's a planetary geologist. And this particular podcast isn't tied to one journal article he's done. He's done journal articles 
several of them, you know, in like geology and astronomy themed journals. But this particular podcast is about his field, specifically planetary geology, because would most people, when you think planetary geology, what do you think, right? The idea being we can look at other planets in the solar system. We can look at any kind of these bodies out here that we can see and try to see if those planets at some point underwent the same kind of processes that Earth does with tectonic plates and all this other stuff and what that might tell us about the planet. Because we can't just go walk around on Mercury, right? And yet, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> but we can do these other things. So it branches off from specific journals to sometimes a more general explanation of or description of the work that someone's doing. And I think that way we have a little bit more leeway, I guess, in getting into what that researcher is really interested in, what their passion projects are without necessarily having to tie it to a specific article. Now, I have done some that were tied to specific articles, and they were good as well. We did one on a psychology paper on how people are sort of, you're as young as you feel. So working with elderly people and determining how how old they, quote unquote, feel and how that affects them in day-to-day, like cognitive ability or the ability to do tasks or mood. So that was fascinating too. So really the podcast kind of jumps between something that might be tied to a specific journal and broader topics that might just be of interest generally. Part of this is finding fields that people wouldn't think about. When you think about a scientist, you can easily think about a generalist biologist or a or maybe something more special like a virologist. But then when you actually talk about your podcast, you're just talking about molecular paleontology, which I bet plenty of people has never heard of, or uh, planetary geology, which is it's literally a pretty far out field. I also want to know, how, how is it do you break down these journals? What's the best way to take a lot of these uh, thick, very dense papers that, that many people will bounce off of? And how do you make it digestible for a general audience that is interested in science, but doesn't necessarily feel confident or like they have the time in order to invest directly into a journal? Right. That's that's really the challenge of my entire job. And the way that you do that is you just talk to the scientist and you explain to them, hi, I'm covering your work and I was going to be a medievalist. So <laughs> if you're doing physics, we're going to need to spend a little bit of time breaking down terms. And, you know, the thing about researchers on the highest levels in a research one university, they're very smart people. They understand what we need to do and how we need to do it. And it's a back and forth process. So usually with the folks I'm working with, I'll go in with the paper and I'll say, okay, I read the, the abstract of this paper. And here's what this sounds like it means to me as a non-scientist. And then that's our starting point. And they'll be like, well, no, that's actually completely wrong. Here's what it really means. And we go from there. And over time with the conversation, it has to be a back and forth. I don't just talk to a scientist and then go off and write and publish something because you can misunderstand. You know, part of what we talk about when we talk about communicating science is that if you're a scientist or a researcher in any field, hard sciences or, you know, not, in the course of getting your PhD, you've developed a very specific vocabulary, okay? And that's so that everybody in your field knows exactly what you're talking about. It has to be very precise. But that vocabulary does not always translate outside your field. And so part of the work that we do, or part of what I like to try to do, is find ways to bridge that gap. 
between that very sort of subject-specific vocabulary and things that people who don't have that background can understand easily. So that's most of the work, and we are very blessed in that we have a faculty that is super sharp and super smart and super able to do this stuff pretty easily. Sounds like you're doing wonderful work, Tracy. I really appreciate you letting me have this interview. Your podcast sounds fantastic. Could you give us the name of your podcast again? Sure. It's um, the Audio Abstract here at NC State. I'm Aaron Kling with the WKNC 88.1, Eye on the Triangle. We will be doing an excerpt of Tracy Peake's Audio Abstract, five-minute clip, for all of you to enjoy, and I'm really hoping you check out the rest of her show in the future. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks a lot, Aaron. You may or may not be familiar with this, but a few weeks back, there was a story in the news about a UPS delivery driver who failed to deliver a package to someone, I believe it was in Virginia, but southeastern United States, because there was a bear in the driveway. Did we have any evidence of large mammals like bears running around in suburbia? Or is that just a crazy outlier? No, we definitely... so. In our study in Washington, D.C., we had bears in the exurban area of the gradient, not in the suburban, but they were getting, you know, you can imagine some of the neighborhoods in the outskirts of Raleigh that, that they could, you know, be very happy there. Um, in Raleigh and in the triad, so bears as part of the bear management plan of the state, the State Wildlife Resources Commission actively discourages colonization of the Piedmont by black bears. And so we didn't have any black bears in the in the North Carolina portion of our study. But we do know from an ongoing study of bears in the Asheville area that they are very capable of colonizing and, you know, doing very, very well in suburban um, and, you know, ex, it's more ex-urban, some, some of the lower level suburban areas. And they will happily swim in your pool and eat your trash and you know um, for obvious reasons um you know there are there are practices that the wildlife resources commission encourages in terms of discouraging behavior because we can coexist with bobcats and we can coexist with bears we can coexist with coyotes but we need to kind of think about how we're approaching those animals for example we never want to feed them right um you know or encourage them to to approach us further than just kind of looking at them from a distance and enjoying them. I'm very happy to look at a bear from a distance. Exactly. Yes, That's I don't the need them on my back porch or swimming in a pool. <laughs> that would be quite disturbing. Are the findings for this study good news for us in terms of conservation efforts, or what is it telling us about what we need to do? Yeah, it's. I think it's telling us that we are doing a, a good job of providing so one of the the main things that we we found in terms of some of these more what we would consider sensitive species like bobcats or even coyotes to a certain extent in terms of them being able to um, colonize some of these suburban areas is green space and in terms of conservation in our cities especially in these two cities washington and raleigh um, we're doing a pretty good job of providing green space and allowing these animals um, the ability to navigate some of these more you know tough areas where they might not be able to. Um, But uh, again, you know, it's important to realize that these are, for the most part, generalist species, meaning that these are the species uh, that would be expected to easily adapt to things like urbanization. And that it doesn't mean that that we should stop conserving, you know, our our national parks, our state parks, our game lands, and places like that where, where more sensitive species, more rare species might, you know, would still need uh, that space 
to kind of survive. And if there are species that haven't adapted that may over time, allowing them this this green space and this these protected areas could give them the time to be able to to make those those adaptive leaps. What would your advice be to the normal uh, suburban dweller? who may walk out onto his or her back porch and encounter a raccoon or a possum or a fox or some species of wild animal that they are not expecting to see. Are there certain precautions we want to take? We obviously don't want to feed our domestic pets to these animals, and they would completely eat them, some of them. Yeah, some of them, certainly, you know, a coyote would would be capable of eating, you know, something like a cat or a small dog. Um, a raccoon could certainly, you know, fight with a cat and, and you know, cause some injury. So obviously, yeah, we would keep our pets inside if, if, if that's, you know, you kind of walk out or you look out one day and, and there's a coyote in your yard or something like that. For the most part, though, most people will never see these animals. It is relatively rare. If you're not feeding them, that's that's the really the main message. You don't want to encourage them to come into your space by providing them food intentionally. So, you know, you don't ever want to put a cookie out for a raccoon because that raccoon will come back and bring his friends. Um, and, you know, <laughs> Through the raccoon grapevine. <laughs> um, exactly. They, yeah, news travels of cookies pretty, pretty quickly. So if you're not intentionally feeding them, they'll generally just pass through your yard. Occasionally, um, if you have things like tra- open trash, so you're not intentionally feeding them, but you might be accidentally feeding them open trash. Sometimes gardens will will attract, especially um, uh, rabbits and deer, which are not you know particularly offensive to anyone, but right. it'll sometimes attract your raccoon or your possum. And so, um, just kind of limiting that as much as possible. And then if there is one, uh, you know, just kind of give them as much space as you can, and they will move on especially if there's nothing enticing like food available. That's all for this week's show. Tune in to Audio Abstracts if you get the chance. And remember, vaccinations save lives, folks. Thanks to our live audience who has tuned in to hear our sets. It means a lot to us all here, and we're always happy to hear from you as well. That's right. If you have any burning questions or powerful opinions, hit us up at publicaffairs at wknc.org. We are also accepting applicants if you'd like to become a part of the Eye on the Triangle team. And be sure to check out our blog at wknc-eot.tumblr.com. Our intro music for today's show was Safe Sacks by Texas Radio Fish. Copyright 2019, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 license. Stay tuned for your usual programming of amazing indie hits, and we'll see you all again next time. Take care now.